great to be here with you today. So thankful for all of you who are here and uh, for the love that uh, you pour out on me and so many others. And I, I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again here on this uh, special Sunday. My problem with this church is that I find there are too many people to love and that I wish, I wish I had more time to love more people because I find so many lovable people here. And I'm just thankful uh, to be here with you. Thank you guys who, who led us today. I want to thank uh, Brother Terry for making that poster um, to welcome everybody to church. Um, we talk about humility, um, but for him to go make that poster, I think that's one of those humble things I've ever seen anybody do in the church to, to do that. Uh, almost humiliation, I mean, to, to that point. Uh, that's how humble it is. Um, so we just want to honor him for being so humble. Um, let, me, let me pray for us briefly. Lord, come and inhabit your people now, please. And would you let us see your beauty and goodness as we introduce this book of Exodus. In Jesus' name, amen. Such a gift to, uh, will y'all put my PowerPoint up there, please? If it's possible. Uh, such a gift to have the Bible and such a gift to have the book of Exodus because God has revealed himself. And human beings need, we need revelation. Human beings have always had questions. And if you study the history of philosophy, you find very quickly that people are asking the same kind of questions over and over again. Uh, things like, where do we come from? What's a, what's a good life look like? Who's a good person? Uh, what is the meaning of life? Is there, is there anything outside of what, what's really real in the universe? These kind of questions are, are questions that human beings just naturally ask. And the Bible answers those questions, not like philosophy texts answer them. It answers them by telling us a story and supplementing that story with various other uh, accompanying uh, teachings along the way. That's what we get in the book of Exodus. It's, it's revelation of God being given to us. God comes and he looks at the, the human situation. We're so messed up. We're in such a bad shape. And he says, I'm going to help you out of that. I'm going to rescue you out of it. And what we see in the book of Exodus is God beginning to say to the miserable people, here's an alternative way. And I'm going to form my people and make of you something else that's going to be a light to all the nations so that everyone will know how to live. One way that people try to answer these questions of life is to deny that there is anything outside of human beings. This is the way of atheism. Most people throughout history, the vast majority of human beings that ever lived, have not gone that route uh, because it's intuitively obvious that uh, to most people that this world is not an accident. But still some people do. They say, well, well, it's just us here and we'll figure it out. Others historically have tried to answer the question by saying, well, there are all kinds of spiritual beings out there. And today, that kind of view has made a comeback in New Age-type theology, where it's a, it's a new form of paganism, really. And we bow down to whatever gods may be, to the unknown gods we worship. And we say, whatever's out there, we're trying to please you. But that's not what's presented to us in the Bible. What we get in the Bible is a picture of God. The God. One God. True God. Living God who cares about people and who wants us to know him and who reveals himself to us. And that is what we get in the book of Exodus. 
in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, what we've got is a revelation of God because God wants us to know him. I'm reading a commentary on the book of Exodus right now as, I, as I'm studying and preparing for these talks by a humanist scholar. I'm not sure exactly what he believes, but he identifies as a humanist scholar. And I was struck by what he said about God. And I want to read it to you. You can read it with me. God is different from any other character in any other work of Western literature, mythic or realistic, different in power and authority, complexity and solicitude, and in the demands that he makes on his followers. To paraphrase the text, there is none like him anywhere. And we've been singing that this morning, you know. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Who is like the Lord? Scripture asks us. And the implied answer is no one is like the Lord. We meet a character in the pages of Scripture that's entirely different than any other character in all of literature because there simply is no one like him, and we are invited to know him. In the book of Genesis, we were introduced to this God who made the planet, who made the universe, who went to Abraham and said, I'm going to take your family and reveal myself through you, he came down and confirmed his promise through, through Isaac and Jacob. Then we got Joseph. Joseph went to Egypt, and he rescued his family in the famine. Joseph became the second most powerful man in Egypt. And powerfully, God demonstrated that he will care for his people. But the book ends with the people of Israel in Egypt. And then we get further down the road, and we find out that Joseph has been forgotten, and the people of Israel have been enslaved. In Egypt the tide has turned against them and the story then we find is what is God doing for these people who have been enslaved in Egypt I am just going to introduce the Exodus to you uh, today and this is not going to be a, a long sermon because of uh, all we've got going today uh, but let me just tell you a few things to look for as we're preparing to enter Exodus and then we'll look at the first two chapters briefly uh, there are three important moments or movements uh, in the book of Exodus. These are identity-forming. These are, if you want to call them, salvific moments, moments where, where the salvation of God comes. And we want to pay attention as we're, as we're moving through Exodus to these three moves. The first is the Exodus from Egypt. Okay, if you missed that one, you just weren't paying attention to the song. Uh, that, that's obvious. The Exodus from Egypt, chapters 1 through 15, then we're going to get them out to Sinai, and we're going to see that they're given the law. And we're going to pay attention. It's not just it's the Ten Commandments, but it's not just the Ten Commandments they receive. And then after that, we get to some of the most boring stuff in all the Bible. I kid you not. I, I can hardly stand some of this. But we're going to find how to make, make meaning of it when we get to it. We're not going to just... Uh, so 13 of the 40 chapters of Exodus are given over to details about building the tabernacle. And we're not just going to sit here and read those over and over. We are going to try to pay attention to what the significance of that is. God is teaching his people worship. Worship of the one and only God, not pagan worship. So we get, we get deliverance, we get obedience, we get worship in the book of Exodus. And that's, that's where we're going over the next few months. Okay. Well, let me, let me hold off just a second on that, that. 
I want to encourage you to read in two ways as you're reading. I hope you'll read Exodus on your own. Read it through rapidly sometimes. Don't, don't slow down just to get a sense of the whole. Read it through slowly at other times to, to just draw on the, the depth of the meaning you can pull out of it. But read, first of all, in one way like you've never read it before. That is, become a naive reader. And act like you don't know what's going to happen. And then see how that hits you as you read. The other way to read is to read knowing the full outcome. That is, don't read like a naive reader. Read like a Christian reader. Read like someone who knows the ultimate denouement of this plot is in Jesus Christ. And that everything that happens back here is actually significant way off over there. You can read it both ways. And there's a tension in that. We have to kind of psychologically uh, move around a little bit to do that. But, but I encourage you just to give it a try and see what God gives you as, as you're reading. And we'll see what God gives us as we're talking about this together. Now, what we have in the first two chapters of, of the book of Exodus is we get introduced to perhaps the most famous Jewish man in the history of the world besides Jesus Christ, and that is Moses. And we are going to see three events that reveal his character. Before that, let me just summarize. Like, like I said, I can't take a long time with this today, but if you read those first two chapters, you'll see where things have changed. They're, they've been in Egypt. They've uh, been successful and prosperous. Joseph had been so powerful, but there's a regime change that happens, and a new pharaoh comes to power. May, we don't know all the details. It doesn't give, us to, give the details to us, but, but something's off, and he sees these Israelites as a threat. They have become so huge. The multitude has grown so much, and, and, and this new regime says, that's a threat to us. We've got to stop this. And so basically, the first thing you see about the Israelites when you encounter them in the book of Exodus is that they're just having a bunch of babies, much like Irving Church. All right? And that's what they're doing, and Pharaoh says, I'm going to stop this. And the first thing he does to try to stop it is, is an indirect approach. He says, let's just oppress them and see if that'll stop them having babies. It doesn't work. Let's make them slaves. It doesn't work. He finally says, let's have official infanticide. Let's kill these babies. And so he goes to the midwives, and he says, when the babies are born, you kill them. You remember these, these, these midwives? It's interesting that the story of Moses, does never, it never gets started without five women. Five women who uh, take their stand for what's good and right. And two of them are these midwives. They're named uh, Shifra, I believe, and Pua. And uh, for our new mothers and fathers, those names are available if you have girls. So uh, I think Maya and Pua, that, that has a good ring to it. So y'all know it's just available. I'm not claiming it. Um, and these women, they get named in the text, even though we don't even know the Pharaoh's name. They get named in the text for all history to know who they are because they refuse, they defy the emperor himself. They say, nope, and they make a fool of him. Now, that's what they do. They say, well, we can't, we try, but the, the Hebrew women, they're just so strong, they get their babies out so fast, and we can't get there to kill them. <laughs> and so the people of Israel continue to be protected. They continue to grow. Eventually, Moses is born, and his mom looks at him and says, I'm not going to kill him. She puts him in a basket, strategically, I think. Strategically, she sets him in the water where she knows likely, maybe important, Egyptian women come to bathe. 
and thinks maybe they would take a baby. And she does this. It works. Then Pharaoh's daughter defies Pharaoh as well and says, I'm taking this baby home. And in God's great providence, he arranges for the mother of Moses to become his nurse and to, to feed him and to raise him up. We don't know exactly what age it was, not that old, but she gets to take care of him for a while, perhaps instill certain things in him that would never leave him before he transfers over to, to Pharaoh's palace. Isn't this amazing that here we have this little baby getting saved, and nobody besides God himself knows the significance of it. Nobody knows that this is going to be the defeat of an empire. None of these women who are standing up to Pharaoh realize the ultimate outcome of this is going to be written in the pages of history and for the salvation of the entire world, eventually through Jesus Christ. All they know is we're trying to do the right thing. We're not going to kill a baby. I think about that because I think much of our lives are spent not recognizing the significance of what we're doing. I was reading the book of Esther just the other day. Esther becomes queen by a crazy circumstance because the other queen really does, does something good, but she gets kicked out of being queen. Esther becomes queen, doesn't even realize what's happening, but it turns out while she's queen, a very prominent man in the kingdom named, named Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And Esther just so happens to be queen, and that's where we get that famous scripture. Could it be, Mordecai asked Esther, could it be you're in the kingdom for such a time as this? Could it be that this is why all that happened? So that you then would be right where you are to save God's people? And she does. And today, there is still a feast, a holiday, a Jewish holiday observed, the Feast of Purim, if you've heard of that. Uh, still observed today because of what Esther did, saving, saving the people. She didn't know what she was there for. But when she saw that there was a time to act for what's good and right, she acted for what's good and right, and God took it and did something amazing with it. I think of this, I was trying to think of a good illustration for it, and I, I know there are better illustrations, but, but sometimes uh, I'm not very musically inclined, but I'll sit down at one of these keyboards that has automated responses to it, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, this is the kind uh, Miss Becky plays. Um, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, you, you sit down and you play, and all of a sudden it sounds so beautiful. All right, you push a button, it's like... All right, you push one button, and it's doing something entirely different and something much more beautiful. I think of that as what's happening a lot of times with the, with the significance of our daily lives. We're, we push a button, we're acting, we're just trying to be faithful. We don't know that God might be saving somebody's life. We say we're going to try to be kind. We're going to try to honor the Lord Jesus today. We're going to try to, 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 to be patient with our children because that's what the Lord Jesus has called us to. We're going to try to reach out to somebody who's hurting and in grief today because that's what the Lord Jesus has called us to. And we don't recognize that these actions could have significance down through the ages. What God does on a macro level through Moses and through his people, through these stories in the Bible, I think he wants us to see that he does on a micro level for us and through us. And he wants us to take our lives seriously to realize he's working through them to accomplish his purposes. That's what he does here with these women and with, with uh, their actions in his kingdom. 
Well, Moses is raised in the palace, probably learned Egyptian ways, probably learned how to ride and shoot the bow. Maybe he learned the secret of the pyramids. Probably was highly educated, learning Egyptian cosmology and theology and mathematics and, and all of these things. And it becomes all the more significant that this man is going to give that up to lead God's people. We don't get any of that background. We don't know if he was beloved in the palace, if he was hated because he was adopted. We don't know. What we know is that the next time we see him, Moses is wandering around and he's grown up and he's walking among the Israelite area of Egypt. And these three stories reveal his character. I'm not going to spend long on them at all. First, there's an Egyptian who's beating a Hebrew. Moses jumps in. Maybe he didn't mean to kill the guy. Maybe he didn't know his own strength. We don't know. But he kills this Egyptian and he hides him. He saves a Hebrew. Perhaps Moses was well, well aware of his own identity at that point. Maybe his mother had instilled something in him at such a young age he never forgot. We don't know. But something moves him to take care of that problem. Next time, next day he's walking, I believe he says the next day, and there's a conflict between the fellow Hebrews. And it's interesting, Moses stops the conflict. The Bible says specifically that he, uh, he, he stops the guy who was in the wrong. He addresses the guy who was in the wrong. So here he is standing up against the oppressors both times. And, and uh, that guy asks a question to him, and this is a super significant question. He says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's exactly what Moses is going to be <laughs> well, as, we, as we follow through the story. He's going to be the prince and judge over them. But the question is so, uh, it, it, it dangles in the air before us because that is the question. That capital W who question is the question that Exodus answers for us. Who made you? It's not even who are you so much as who made you? Who appointed you? Who is behind all of this? The book of Exodus as the Bible itself is meant to introduce us to that who. To that God, to his will, and it being above all else. Please do not turn your Old Testament into a book of moral lessons. You can read the three little pigs and learn how to be a hard worker. You can read the the boy who cried wolf and learned not to lie, or Pinocchio or whatever, you can't read them and come to know the true and living God. And the scriptures introduce us to the God who is, who says, I am that I am. And I will do what I will do, and you should get to know me. And then the last setting, Moses flees when they find out the, the guy questions him, and, and he says, you're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? He flees out to, uh, to Midian, and uh, there, there's no evidence, by the way, that Moses here knows God. That's important to note. Not really. Maybe he has some faint idea. He's just a good man. And he sees these, these daughters of the Midianite priest coming to water their flock, and they're getting pushed around by some men in that area. Moses stands up. We don't know what he did. Maybe he got into a big fight. Whatever he did... He defends them. They water their animals. They go home early, and their dad's like, why are you home so early? They're like, this guy there, this Egyptian guy, because of the way Moses looked and talked. He, he rescued us from, from the guys who, who push us around. And that guy says, well, go get him. And he gives him a wife. <laughs> One of his daughters <laughs> becomes his wife, and he has a son. And uh, you can read all this. I don't have time to get into it, but this is how Moses gets settled in to Egypt compassionate man, a courageous man, but a man who does not yet know what he needs to know. 
who does not yet know who he needs to know. And that's when we get finally to the text that Brother Gary read for us this morning so well. Thank you, Brother Gary. Uh, and these four beautiful claims are made. Let me just pause here. This is, this is where we'll wrap things up. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Notice the, the particularities of this text, by the way. It doesn't say they cried out to God. It says their cry came up to God. So far, it doesn't look like in this text that the people as a whole have much knowledge of God at all. Joseph has died. The people who really knew the Lord have gone on, and, and God has been absent for a long time. And so it seems to them that God has been absent, and they don't remember God. They're just groaning, but guess what? God remembers them. This is a God who has tied himself to them in a covenant. Now, this is crazy stuff, guys. We're so used to hearing this. We're so used to think, oh, yeah, yeah, the covenant, the covenant, the new covenant, old covenant, uh, covenant here, covenant there, whatever. We don't think about what it means for a God who rules the world to say, I'm going to bind myself to you with an oath that I will always keep. That's what the God of the Bible does. He did it with Abraham. You remember what he, remember what he said to Abraham? I love the way the book of Hebrews reminds us of what God did here. Look at this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. <laughs> I mean, whenever people, make, whenever people swear by things, right, they always swear by something higher. It's like holding themselves accountable. I swear by my grandma's grave. Like, I don't want to do anything that might cause something, my grandma being, you know, or whatever. I swear by the Bible because this is so holy and something could happen to me. It's like you're calling yourself to account by something greater above you, right? God had nothing greater by which to swear. And so he said, I swear by myself, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what's happening, right? Pharaoh can't stop on multiplying. And he goes on to tell Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise you up. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And then through you, this is important to know about the biblical doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is not that God wants to save a few people and chunk the rest out. The doctrine of election is that God calls a few people, a small people, so that they can take his light to all the nations. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. That's what they're supposed to be doing, becoming that nation. God is going to form them into that kind of people. And so God still sees them and still hears their cry. And then these four words, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. I'll come back to that in just a second. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. I wish I had Brother Gary's voice because I need to say that better. And God knew. <laughs> That's how he said it. It's not like... God was like I am when I leave the bathtub running too long. Oh, I just remembered. The water's running. That's not this kind of memory. It's the kind of memory where uh, the Scripture says God remembers our sins against us no more. It's not like he gets amnesia or something. It's that he no longer brings them into focus. He no longer actively pays attention to them. He puts them behind him. This is what's going on with the covenant. God now says, okay, I am actively going to 
to consider this covenant now. It's time for me to do something about this situation. He's bringing it into focus because he hears and he sees and he knows. There's multiple ways you could understand that. One way is that he's acknowledging the claim. Another way is to say that God uh, feels because biblical knowledge frequently has to do with an experiential kind of thing. He doesn't just know it in his head, but God experiences it. God suffers with his people. All of these combined, they tell us that God is aware and that God cares. It's important for us uh, to be aware of this when God feels like he's absent, when he's been silent for a long time. We serve a God who does not forget his covenant. There are times inexplicable to us, we will understand it one day, but inexplicably to us, he doesn't seem present. And you may be in a time like that right now. But God does not forget. We serve a God who says, he didn't have to say this, you see. He says, I promise. You understand, when the scripture says he swears by himself, it's like, you know what that means? Nobody can hold him accountable to it. <laughs> he didn't swear by anybody higher than himself. The only thing that holds him accountable is his own greatness and goodness. And this God says, I promise, and my promises will never fail. And we may not always see clearly or understand why he doesn't seem to be as present as we want him to be, but this is a God who does not forget his covenant. And if you're here today feeling like God has been absent, I encourage you to hear the story, not just of Exodus, but the story of the Bible. We have a God who never forgets his people. God did not make a covenant. He didn't come to Abraham, find him, rescue him, confirm his covenant to Isaac and Jacob, set Joseph up and, and rescue his people through Joseph. All of that... He didn't do all that to let one generation come along and blow it all up and say, I'm done with you guys. That's never what God planned to do. God has a plan that he will work out because he's just great enough to do it. And we can trust that he will. This is the God we know. And this is the God we're going to get to know better in the book of Exodus. We invite you to join with us in the coming weeks to explore the beauty and goodness of God through the book of Exodus. Praise team, would you guys come on up here? And I'll pray as you come. Lord, help us to hear these words and help us to know you and truly know you, Lord. And in our knowledge of you, Lord, teach us how to live. In Jesus' name, amen.